The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon um, and welcome to the first seminar in our Trinity Centre for Early Modern History seminar series this coming term, this Hillary term, second semester, depending on one's usage. And you're all very welcome to what I think promises to be a very exciting programme of events. I'm delighted to see that we have such a large audience. We have, I think, 60 people in the crowd there today, 61 and climbing. Um, to hear our first paper, um, which will be given by Dr. Leonie Hannan from Queen's University, Belfast. Leonie is a social and cultural historian working on intellectual life of the long 18th century. She has a particular focus on, I think, scientific inquiry in the domestic sphere. And her second book is forthcoming with Manchester University Press, um, not too distant future, um, and is entitled A Culture of Curiosity scientific inquiry in the 18th century home. And I think a lot of people are very curious to see that when it comes out. Leonie will be, I'm sorry for that, Leonie will be very well, I think well known to some people for her work, um, both in terms of the Centre of Public History at Queen's University, but also I think more importantly, her work on letter writing and on writing lives in the early modern period and in the sort of what we might call the sort of bridging space between the 17th and 18th century from the 1650s to the 1750s. Um, and her first monograph, Women of Letters, Gender Writing and the Life of the Mind in Early Modern England, was published in 2016. And just before I hand over to Leone, um, to today's paper, um, what I want to do is just to highlight um, that anybody who wishes to ask a question, please post your questions in the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen rather than the chat screen. And then we'll come to those questions at the end of the presentation. If any questions, please post them there. Um, and to remind anybody that those listening um, that you will be able to also hear this paper and all of our papers from last semester are available as podcasts through the Trinity Long Room Hub. And that the programme for this term's um, seminars is available online at the Trinity Long Room Hub and also at our at our Twitter page at early TCD. Um, I'll stick that in the chat as well in a few moments. But without further ado, I want to hand over to Dr. Leonie Hannan, whose title is, as you can see on the screen, A Culture of Curiosity, Scientific Inquiry in the 18th Century Home. I look forward to this. Okay, thank you so much, Patrick. That's a really um, nice introduction. And yeah, this Can you hear? Isn't can everyone hear that? Yeah. yeah, you're all right. Okay, thing came off my screen there. Um, so I'm really delighted to be able to share some of these ideas with you. Um, because through lockdown and various other issues, I've been trying to make progress here with the book as a whole. But obviously, um, it's really nice to be able to share some of these ideas with you as they develop. Um, and the title really refers to my larger project. But what I'll be doing today is trying to give you some of the detail to try and um give you a sense of where, I guess, the, 
the meat the meat and potatoes of the argument there by through that qualitative example so this paper is based um on my research into the home in general as a site of inquiry and more specifically with this project into um into the natural world and my long-term interest in non-traditional intellectual actors in the long 18th century. So through an investigation of the early modern home and its material affordances and a range of inquiring individuals from apprentices right through to aristocrats, I'm making the argument that the work of home shaped intellectual life in this period. And I'm primarily looking at British and Irish sources here with a few North American sources um, where I can find them. So many, domestic activities requiring subtle material knowledge, such as preserving, baking, um, brewing, stilling, um, you know, are part of the picture here, but so were other kind of domestic habits, such as record keeping. And um, these might encompass accounting for household expenditure alongside perhaps writing weather diaries. So I'm looking at a sort of whole range of practices from things that are very directly related to provisioning to, to other kinds of domestic practice. The people that I study benefited from early modern shifts in thinking that prioritised personal experience and experiment in the production of new knowledge. But um, I guess I don't regard these people who are largely unknown to histories of science or histories of intellectual life as merely copying ideas that have trickled down to them from on high. My sense is that the conditions, needs and capacities of domestic life actively directed natural knowledge in this period and that these curious nobodies had a significant role in moulding the practices and culture of 18th century inquiry. So in recent decades, studies of the Enlightenment have been less inclined to emphasise the newness of this period of intellectual life. As a result, a much more complicated picture has emerged, one that acknowledges continuity alongside change. For example, recent scholarship has revealed deep-rooted practices of repair and reuse of both domestic and scientific equipment, alongside the new possibilities offered by technological advancement. I'm thinking here of people like Simon Werrett's work, his book, Thrifty Science is an interesting account of this. Similarly, the practices and insights of science in this era have come to be seen as having a much more entangled relationship with other spheres of life, such as commerce and manufacturing than perhaps were previously acknowledged. So these efforts to contextualize intellectual activity have also resulted in a more material and embodied understanding of inquiry, as people like Pamela H. Smith and others have very strongly argued. Ideas simply cannot travel without objects and bodies, that kind of notion. However, this focus on the material does not banish language, of course, to the sidelines. Taxonomy and terminology were certainly of utmost importance to many 18th century scholars and experimenters, many of whom spent their time naming things, describing processes and identifying relationships between things. The process of naming things was, of course, materially embedded. And as Adriana um, Krathian and Simon Schaffer have commented, Carl Linnaeus himself, this is a quote, associated naming with the diagnosis of properties. Close quote. He thought that plants could, quote, reliably speak their own character. Um, taking this belief seriously, the this is a quote, the eloquent testimony of that epoch's material worlds has become a key concern of many Enlightenment studies. So let me just take us to our next slide here. Let's see if I can do it. Okay. Okay. There are distinct advantages to using the home to examine larger currents of intellectual life. For one, domestic space was available to almost everyone and had some unifying characteristics, although it differed, of course, dramatically in its scale and affordances. 
Um, the household and its inhabitants also sat in a conceptual relationship with the state. And whilst it serves the purposes of my research to look at the home as a site of intellectual work, those engaged in these activities were likely to, to have understood the home as a miniature nation. Making connections between domestic order and good national government came naturally to many early modern householders. And in this way, they might also connect their own home experiments with the pressing concerns of their age. And some of the examples I've found certainly do that. Domestic work was constant and varied and larger homes contained one or more rooms that were specially designed and equipped to perform productive functions. The early modern home made many more of its everyday necessities from raw ingredients than it's common in 21st century Western society. Moreover, where a household had access to land, raw ingredients might be cultivated for domestic use. And in the absence of refrigeration, preserving and pickling were key strategies for making food last and ensuring a varied diet during the cold winter months. Household account accounts and recipe books reveal the wide range of ingredients familiar to those in charge of household provisioning, but also the expansive repertoire of processes enacted on those ingredients in order to maximize their value and use. And Elaine Leong is a historian of science who's written a great book about recipes and um, knowledge. Okay, so I've got another slide for you here. Oh, yep, onions, that's right. So just, yeah, just a bit of an example, <laughs> a couple of examples. We've got a page with all sorts of different onions on here um, and pickling, all sorts of types of vegetables really common. And then um, also a storage jar for potted meat. So potting meat was quite a popular uh, way of preserving um, various kinds of meat at this time. Um, so domestic work has often been treated as a kind of unchanging continuum in contrast with the large scale changes that are seen to take place in other forms of work in our period. The shift in labour relations in the 18th and early 19th centuries are often cited as key determinants of the emergence of so-called modernity and our understanding of work is then of critical importance to our understanding of this period as a crucible of social and economic change. However, as Jane Whistle has eloquently unpacked, common scholarly definitions of work are flawed, principally because they misunderstand work that took place in the home, especially when it's done by women. In this context, it is perhaps unsurprising that a significant body of scholarship on the home as a place of work focuses on the labour relations of domestic service, precisely because of the insight they offer into those larger socioeconomic shifts associated with um, early industrialization. Um, by contrast, Carolyn Stevens' recent analysis casts new light on the qualities of servants' labours, the feelings it provoke, provoked, and the materials and mention of domestic service, arguing that, and this is a quote, material things, jokes, jests, and the well-set jam a maid servant had just produced were objects and entities part of the social world, close quote. And as such, she's arguing critical to our understandings of social order, this kind of social order at that time and place. So I think I've got another slide here for you. Yeah, okay. So a lot of my slides, I'm afraid, are little bits of quotation, but just makes it a bit easier, I hope, for you to be able to follow those and for me to stop having to say close quotes, etc. In domestic tasks, status could be derived, gender roles could be performed, and care for others could be undertaken. When gentlewoman Anne Dormer of Rousham House in Oxfordshire complained of her husband, um, being much taken with all sorts of cookery and spends all his ingenuity in finding out the most commodious way of frying, boiling, resting, stewing and preserving. He makes his whole study. She commented that he was loitering about, sometimes stews prunes, sometimes makes chocolate, and this summer he is much taken with preserving. 
So preserving does seem to be the, the recurrent interest. Her point was clear here though, these tasks and who did them mattered, not only for home economy, but also for the moral order of her household. So she was, she was highly, I mean, there was a very fractious marital relationship behind all this discussion of student prunes. Um, uh, and she was very critical of his activities. However, it is exactly these kinds of domestic experiment that are the subject of this paper. Whilst conduct manuals of the period were clear in their prescriptions for how domestic work should be undertaken, for what purpose, perhaps by who, there were householders who sought to use their tightly honed domestic skills to explore a wider field of inquiry. Of course, in this period of enlightenment, the productive work of home has not tended to attract as much attention as the cerebral work of fellows of the Royal Society. One of the reasons, of course, for the persistence of this perhaps false binary of um, hand and mind in our undertakings of intellectual, in our understandings of intellectual work has to be the difficulty we find in putting some manual processes into words. The uncomfortable relationship between forms of knowing that are based on physical manipulation and those that are based on wordy reasoning is strongly reflected in our histories. Um, ideas that are primarily expressed in words understandably commonly find themselves in books, whereas those that do not lack that body of work to explain them. As art historian TJ Clark has um, articulated, and this is his, these are his words, writing automatically aims or pretends to be attentive. It likes details. False vividness gives way abruptly to clever summing up. And that's where his quote ends. It follows that the writing down of some ideas might even distort them, make them something else, something more certain. So the notion of tacit as opposed to explicit knowledge, um, which, is, which is mainly what this paper is about, um, was developed by the philosopher Michael Polanyi. His dates are 1891 to 1976. And he argued that knowing is an art and that any art is basically basically learned by practice. So for Palani, learning involved both doing and being shown how to do something. Moreover, learning and knowing relied upon the social and cultural dynamics of an individual's um, environment, belief in a particular ph phenomenon usually prefiguring any understanding of its workings. For Palani, all knowledge was personal and required personal participation to materialise. For the purposes of what follows, Knowledge learned at home was invariably of the kind that grew from practice, experiment and repetition through learning at an expert side and responded to both the needs and affordances of domestic space and material culture. By looking in detail at how curious householders acquired knowledge at home, we're better able to understand ways of knowing in this period more generally, or at least that's what I'm trying to argue. So next, I want to give you a really close focus view of one such form of tacit knowledge and an attempt to convey that knowledge from person to person and text. And I'm sorry, you're gonna end up with knowing a bit more than you ever wanted to about um, balm as it's called here, but basically starter for what I think we would call sourdough. Maybe you already, having gone through lockdown, you may all be absolute experts on, on uh, sourdough. So I'm sorry if this is all very familiar to you. Um, yeah, so I've called this section her doctrine and practice, which is a quote from these letters, um, bread making in an elite Irish household or knowledge trickles upwards. So one vital domestic commodity that demanded especially careful treatment was the starter or balm, 
which is the word used in these um, recipe books, used in the leavening of bread. This substance consisted of flour, water, bacteria and yeast and often involved the transfer of material between brewing and baking, two important facets of home production. Balm was a much discussed product in 18th century Ireland. The Dublin Society recorded the subject many times over in their transaction. And for example, a Mrs Baker of County Kilkenny noted taking the society's advice on keeping a large stock of balm in her 1810 household book. So in her book, there's several entries to balm, but one of them is, is something she um, has copied over from the, from the society. Um, the following example, um, the following example drawn from family letters outlines the details of this specialised domestic knowledge, who had it and how it might be communicated. The discussion of balm reveals the ways tacit knowledge about complex material processes was shared in person and with difficulty in writing. Um, the letter writer was the Church of Ireland Bishop um, Edward Singh, um, his dates 1691-1762, as you might be aware, and what follows is drawn from a large collection of his published letters addressed to his daughter Alicia. Um, and penned between 1746 and 1752. And these may well be letters that you know a lot more about than I do. Okay, yeah, there he is, that's, that's the place. So writing from his Episcopal palace at Elfin, County West Commons, Singh opened a letter to his daughter on the 16th of July, 1751, with a detailed retelling of the process of creating, maintaining, and with an explanation of how he acquired this knowledge. That morning, he had um, a conference, he called it, with Jane about bread, etc., in which she emphasised that the main thing is the balm. Singh was interested in his servant Jane's technique because, in his own words, her bread is excellent and almost constantly so. Her worst is better than the best we ever had last summer, uh, sorry, last winter. Singh was keen for bread of this high quality to produce, be produced by the staff at his Dublin townhouse where his daughter lives. Alicia was um, resident and hoped that she might oversee this project. However, the inherent difficulty in describing in words rather than showing in person was immediately apparent. Only a few lines in and Singh broke off. For fear of writing wrong or imperfectly, I stopped here and sent for Jane. My caution was not amiss. Um, so he was already going wrong there. Singh had the steps in the wrong order, realising this after consulting with Jane for the second time and realising that the straining must be when the balm and water are first mixed. So perhaps he'd left it all a bit too long there. Um, yes, these quotes up here so you can see a bit easier. The first revelation of Jane's practice was that the best balm is that which works out of the vessels of ale when drink is tunned, which just means stored, for the, during the first 24 hours of that process. Jane would use no other kind where she could help it. The next steps were related as follows, and this is the longer quote. When she gets of this balm, she keeps in a vessel by itself, unmixed with anything. From whence she takes every day such quantity as she wants, about a quart does for, for ordinary days, more on great occasions. This she mixes with cold water and having stirred it very well, she leaves to pitch, which I understand to mean settle. All dirt and dross thus falls to the bottom and from whence she pours it off clean into another vessel and if dirt remains, she strains it. But for this, there is seldom occasion. So Singh's retelling of Jane's method noted that balm taken from ale or small beer, she holds equally good. So she doesn't mind which kind of um, brew it is basically. And that this substance could also keep for a good week or 10 days. Um, 
Thus, bread making made use of staple brews, the household revealing the transfer of materials and material knowledge from one office of home production to another. This note also points to the temporal connection between brewing and baking, the rhythm of brewing providing material that could last up to 10 days for the purposes of baking um, before a fresh quantity would be needed. However, what follows indicates the sort of complex overlapping timeframes for domestic tasks such as, as this. Another, yeah, sorry, lots of little bits here. Preparing and maintaining the farm was an iterative process. What she uses one day, she prepares constantly the day before and responsive to the changing needs of the household. Her quantity is in proportion to the bread intended. Some effort was applied to ridding the farm of detritus associated with its previous life in the brew tun. She strains immediately to get clear of hop seeds, etc. Then she lets it pitch, uh, meaning settle for a quarter of an hour or thereabouts, not longer. This process of allowing the liquid to settle was partly responsible for the clarity of the balm, but the method also included the pouring of blended liquor very carefully off into another clean vessel so as to leave all dross behind. The new vessel of balm would then be left overnight, resulting in the clean balm settling at the bottom from which she pours the water off. With this purified, she makes her bread. So there's a number of stages before we get to making bread. Um, at this juncture, it might be imagined the process could begin again, but the instructions continue at length and in detail. Having been shown the practice in person, Singh returns again and again to specific aspects of the process, offering more comprehensive description of the qualities of the materials involved, signs of success, and the aspects of each step that required personal judgment. So, yeah, sorry, lots of little, little bits of quotation here. So tips and pitfalls in the handling of farmer identified in the next tranche of um, his narrative. He warns when she pours off the liquor first from the dross, it looks as if there were little or no balm in it. However, this impression is misleading and Jane reassures her audience that a quart of fowl usually gives the next day a pint purified and subsided to the bottom from the water. Besides exact quantities are not required. Um, she says a little more or less makes no difference in the bread. Some attention is also given to the equipment Jane has to hand and the suitability of different types and sizes of vessel. In a subsequent letter dated um, in 23rd of July, Singh requests that his daughter actually sends a vessel back to Elfin from the Dublin house. Despite the Episcopal residence in Elfin offering a substantial three-storey central building with the addition of two-storey wings, individual vessels were still apparently valued as scarce enough to be requested having travelled from country seat to townhouse needed to make the journey back again. So Jane's decision making was necessarily responsive to a wide range of factors and as such having the right vessel to hand was doubtless important to the smooth running of this routine of, of home production. Edward Singh's retelling of his, um, of his domestic servants practice expresses the levels of familiarity she needed with the properties and characteristics of balm. This material literacy allowed Jane to make appropriate judgments at the many junctures in the cyclical process of acquisition, improvement, maintenance and use. For example, her description discussed how much time um, is, here's the, here's the first quote, enough for the dross and dirt to sink to the bottom while the clean balm continues in a floating state. Confidence was needed in the next moment as leaving the mixture any longer time would occasion it's falling down against the bottom and mixing with the dirt. So you've got to act quick. Um, moreover, the balm harvested from the brewing process was not a uniform product. Having had another conference with her on the subject, he calls these little meetings conferences. 
Singh reported that Jane's response was as follows. Indeed, my lord, says she, I get bummed sometimes as red as a fox, sometimes black, full of hop leaves, bobbane, wormwood, artichoke leaves, and um, a long list of other like ingredients. By straining, I get rid of all of these. This list of ingredients is fascinating. Maybe some of you know more about this um, from having done any of these things yourself at home. I'd be keen to know what your thoughts are. Um, but this, yeah, I mean, hop leaves and bogbane are ingredients commonly used in brewing beer and ale. But some of the other, um, the other things she mentions here are kind of less obvious candidates. Um, the comments suggest that perhaps a much broader range of liquors were home produced at Elfin. That's one possibility, I thought. Or otherwise, perhaps that Jane sometimes relied upon other kinds of fermentation to produce the balm she was using for baking. Although she is clear that ale and small beer is, is the best. So I'm a, bit, I'm a bit unsure about that. According to Singh, Jane described her use of balm as a doctrine and practice, highlighting both her belief in her own methods and their refinement through rep repetition. Throughout Singh's retelling of her method, the challenge of putting practice into words is ever-present. Moreover, the profoundly unequal power relationship between Singh and servant emerges in the narrative, as he finds himself both reliant on her expertise and quite sceptical of her intellectual capacity to really know of what she speaks. So, here's the yeah. Jane's own words make an occasional intrusion into his narrative as he tries to convey all of the essential aspects of her method. Her pleasure at being credited for her knowledge is noted. I've made her very happy already by giving her thanks from you and Mrs. J for her instructions about balm. And a glimpse of diver a diverse palette of household ingredients emerges from the descriptions of purifying and clarifying balm. You know, bog bane, artichoke leaves, all these sorts of things I was just mentioning. And then there are descriptions that describe the balm as white as starch or as red as a fox. Singh notes that where Jane's vocabulary diverts from his own, so he says shearing, so she calls pouring. But it's really hard to say whether the great dross which remains in the bottom was described as red like brick dust or darker by Singh or by Jane. So there's a bit of a merging there that's hard to distinguish sometimes. Singh is forced to account for the responsive quality of Jane's approach, commenting, sometimes she puts more water to the dross when she thinks any good balm is among it and stirs again, and after a quarter of an hour, pours again. I suppose this is when balm is scarce. Um, only experience can tell Jane that there is good balm among it, and Singh is left to wonder if additional serving is the adjusted response to a lack of balm in the past. For the novice, there and this is a quote, no, there's no nicety as to quantity. In other words, no precise amount is ever given. And whilst Jane likes a good deal, Singh is left to discover for himself what that quantity might be. So there's some frustrating gaps as far as he's concerned. So the role of accumulated experience in the development of Jane's technique is something that Singh certainly recognised. Despite this recognition, Singh cast doubt on the quality and basis of that knowledge. He said, to this mean the whiteness and toughness of the balms. She's trying to describe some of these, what it should be like if you're doing things right, basically. Um, he said, to this quality, she chiefly ascribes the goodness of her bread. How that may be, I know not. And in a rare glimpse of Jane's own words, Singh reported her saying, with this, my Lord, I make all your bread and many a hard shift I make to get it. But criticism of her speaking too much immediately follows this statement. Does she run on till I was tired? While Singh took great care to, take, to make a written record of Jane's method, ultimately he neither enjoyed hearing her speak nor entirely trusted her words, commenting, 
Either what she says is true or the goodness of bread depends less on balm than we might imagine. So despite the fact that Singh admitted better bread never, um, never was than I have, have almost constantly from Jane, he was not certain that the reason for this quality was as she described it. He urged his daughters to continue therefore your experiments till, the, till you unravel this great mystery. Thus for Edward Singh, his servant's ability to create delicious bread consistently was firmly believed through personal experience of the results, but her knowledge of the reasons for the success was doubted. Seeing for oneself through experimentation was considered the only reliable route to better understanding. So I guess we can see here, sorry to tell you so much about bread making in the 18th century, but what I wanted to show here is a number of themes that I guess are currently occupying my thoughts um, and which I'm trying to uh, think about in relation to the book. The importance of tacit or practice-based knowledge, and I guess the power relations that influence the way knowledge and the knowledgeable were described and valued. So that's one thing. In some ways, these letters are highly unusual in the detail, detail offered. All too often, the recipes that appear in domestic collections gloss over intricacies of process, assuming a range of competencies that are pretty alien, at least to this 21st century reader. Here I have spent my time with an example that may seem very parochial, the making of bread, hardly the stuff of enlightenment science, one might say. But of course, this is just one of very many forms of knowledge that were developed and in and by the domestic environment. And before I conclude, I'll, I'm going to sketch out another office of home production that fits perhaps a little bit more easily with our modern sense of what science might look like. Um, and that is the still room or still house, it's sometimes called. So I'm going to give you a bit of an exploration of this space. Just now. So. This space was of a particular importance in the production of a range of household remedies and luxuries in the early modern period. And as the name suggests, it principally included, or the kind of pride of it was the still or a kind of alembic for distilling liquids, often heated um, by a dedicated furnace. So in an 1819 inventory in Dunhamassey Hall in Cheshire in England, it listed a still house amongst a bleaching yard, a wash house, a mangle room, laundry, dairy house. Um, and these were all sort of outhouses um, on the estate. And this space um, is listed as containing two tables and two chairs, 48 bottles of vinegar, quantity of old glass, a still, crucially, cupboard, two stools and a butler's tray. So the large number of glass containers are really in this inventory um, are really um, in keeping with a place that produced a huge variety of distilled products that might be used in small quantities over time that you would want to hold on to. Now I'm going to try and bring a, an annotated version of this image. This is a, an image I've just found. It's a frontispiece image for a kind of household manual, but it's a, it's a lovely image because it's a lot going on in here. Um, and as you can see, yeah, herbs and, or maybe hops, they look a bit like they could be hops sort of drying across the top there. Now it looks like there are two, I'm not sure exactly if it's an Alembic or a still here, but there definitely seems to be a furnace um, built in there, if you can see on the left hand side in the kind of archway. Um, beehives out the back, you can see lots of offices, lots of production going on here. And then you can see another glass still right in the foreground and a huge pestle and mortar for grinding up kind of the herbs and um, uh, potentially spices and different things that you would need. And then all 
all around all the sort of storage you can see as well other passables from the table and she's got a recipe book open in her hand whether that's a printed one she's finding things out from or something she keeps herself for notes and who knows but um but yeah so this is a sort of little scene I think it's quite helpful to understanding this space even if it's a somewhat idealized uh, version there is good there is good evidence from an earlier kind of from the Tudor period that the still house could be associated with experimental work so um an article on Thomas Smith of Hill Hall in Essex um showed that let me check whose article that is uh, yep, the Simpson article, um, took great pride in his still house, carefully recording its contents in a separate dedicated inventory and keeping a very close on the work of the space, even when he was abroad. Smith's still house activities were part of a broader engagement in his case with intellectual and antiquarian pursuits, interests that he fostered by equipping his home, not only with books, but also with an incredible number of stills, five pewter, one of copper and a further enclosed pelican still, which is a particular um, design. So let's have a back history to this room into the earlier bit of the early modern period. But by the 18th century, most stills were kept in a room in the main house. They tended not to be in a still house separately as an outhouse and more likely to be in a room. Although earlier household plans had tended to position them yet outside. Likewise, the use of the space shifted over the early modern period, having principally been used for extracting the potent aspects of plants to produce health-giving medicinal ingredients. By the 17th century, still rooms were routinely also used for making and storing confectionery. So they become quite a, a mixed space. Um, the reason these functions were combined was partly because there was overlap in the technique of production of health-giving herbal waters and celebratory cordials, spiced cordials and that kind of thing. At this time, the still room was also largely the domain of the mistress of the household, which designated, I guess, the highest status of stilling as compared to perhaps cooking or curing or cheese making. Mary Evelyn, um, wife of the diarist, English diarist John Evelyn, um, dates to 1635 to 1709. So, She's she's um they're sort of gentry really, but they did shoot that they did go to court. He was obviously a kind of notable figure of that era. Um she remarked that she had, quote, the care of pigs, stilling, cakes, salves, sweetmeats, and such useful things in 1674. Whilst it is reasonable to question the extent to which Mary Evelyn was actually um mucking out the pigsty, um, you know, there are aspects. All the aspects of domestic production here were quite hands-on and the connection being drawn between stilling and the creation of salves and sweetmeats was genuine. These are things that emerged from still house or still room and she was quite likely to have been the person in that 17th century household who was in charge of that space and its production. As Mary Evelyn argued in a letter to a friend, we women are willing to acknowledge all time borrowed from family duties is misspent. The priorities of a wealthy mistress was, she says, at this point, the care of children's education, observing a husband's commands, assisting the sick, relieving the poor and being serviceable to our friends. Now, assisting the sick by providing homemade medicines and entertaining visiting friends, both required time spent in the still room. A 
century later, in 1778, the Household and Personal Expense Account of Jane Crichton, First Baroness Erne of Sackville Street in Dublin, reveal a cost of one pound, one shilling and 18 pence for sweetmeats made at home, interestingly. In 17th and 18th century British and Irish society, it seems upper class households would have produced such confectionery for more elaborate dinners for invited guests. Sweetmeats, um, march pain, like marzipan we'd have it today, confections and jellies would often have adorned the banqueting table. A menu created for the girls of Hopton Hall in Derbyshire in England for a dinner in December 1752, for example, offered a range of desserts, including dried sweetmeats alongside brandied peaches, syllabubs and other fresh and candied fruits. If not bought at great expense from a confectioner, these showy sweet treats may well have been made by the mistress of Hopton Hall herself. However, whilst remedies and sweets may have emerged a plenty from the still room, they offered the curious individual, of course, a wide scope for experimentation with the equipment they contained. So, um, I've got some kind of maybe a, bit, maybe a bit tricky depending on the size of your screen here. Um, this interesting facet of early modern domestic space has not really been given the scholarly attention it deserves, most likely because still rooms really fell out of use at the end of our period and have not really survived that often um, the household improvements for subsequent centuries. In fact, there appears to be only one extant still room in England, as far as I'm aware. Please tell me if you know otherwise. Um, there is there seems to be one at Ham House in Surrey. Although spaces that originally housed the still and other equipment do survive, including this example from Strokeston Park, um, County Roscommon in Ireland. There is quite a bit to pick through here. So sorry, these images are so tiny. Um, and these are from the Irish Architectural Archive. But what, from what I can gather, the um, IAA's attribu attribution of this space as a former storeroom is on the basis that a 17th century reception room with a grand plaster overmantle you can see, especially in those images on the left. Um, you can see, yeah, was really basically that this room was repurposed as a still as a still room when um, the the property was substantially remodelled in the 1730s. So during this rebuild, the former ground floor reception room came to occupy a kind of basement or semi basement, and be put it seems to a different use. So this would be an unusually elaborate um, plaster work to adorn. I think even even uh, a still room. Whilst the Neopalladian redesign included wings for the productive offices of the house, including the kitchen and stables, meaning they were in central bits, they're put off round to the sides, which is quite common. It is possible that the beautiful plasterwork of this former reception room marked the space out for an elevated component of home production, i.e. the still room. Another feature that might have recommended this room for the purpose is, of course, the heat source itself and its presentation in these images from the 1980s reveals walls lined with cupboards, which could feasibly have been added during its conversion to accommodate glass vessels and alike. Thinking back, you know, to that image before where we saw lots of the need for lots of storage and shelves and that kind of thing. So fragments here to go on, and I'm certainly not absolutely sure of what um, we have here, but nonetheless, I guess interesting hints, that's why I wanted to show you them, interesting hints that a still room might be a humble office of home production on the one hand, but rather more prized and high status asset on the other. 
Whilst the example of farm was, I guess, intended to show the depth and complexity of material knowledge concerned uh, concerning even the most quotidian of domestic tasks, and to emphasise the reasons why tacit knowledge is largely absent in the archive, the still room offers us a different view. Here was a space with apparatus that one might have found in the largely domestic lab laboratories of natural philosophers of this period. At this time, in the until you get into the early 1800s, like um, properly maintained like laboratories outside of domestic space were quite unusual, and actually most of the famous names of kind of Enlightenment science did do their work at home. However, the act, the activity that took place here was also determined. Um, by seasonal flows of ingredients and rhythms of domestic um, hospitality, demands and affordances that, affordances that predicted the work that took place there, experimenting with materials and chemical processes to achieve desired results were an essential part of home production. Um, as I've said, Elaine Leong's work on recipe books shows this very clearly. So in looking at domestic practice and knowledge about baking or stilling or many other kinds of domestic practice, two issues emerge. First, it has been difficult for historians to detect much of the unwritten tacit understanding of home and therefore to fully value it in our histories of knowledge. As Easterby Smith has highlighted for the science of the botany, the expertise of gardeners had, and this is a quote, significant intellectual components that were simply not recorded by most 18th century botanical scholars, despite the fact that botanical transfers depended completely on the tacit knowledge and expertise of gardeners, close quote. Moreover, the large scale societal changes brought by processes of innovation and industrialization in this era were steeped in the skills, techniques, and tacit knowledge learned by doing. This is, of course, a well established observation. However, by bringing the details of those elusive but significant intellectual components to the typed page, we can begin to see not only a broader spectrum of knowing, but also a more diverse um, cast of intellectual actors. So my conclusions are, there's just a few to finish off here. Um, I guess I think this and other examples when taken together, and I've had to leap into detail here really with this, um, with this paper, but obviously there are more besides to build a bigger picture. But I think they point to a number of important characteristics of 18th century knowledge production. So the first would be tacit, um, tacit knowledge is valued, but elusive to those without the relevant material literacies um, driven by practice. And this point, this point relates to kind of longer term trends that have been identified by um, especially historians of science, you know, the sort of shift from secret knowledge and the power of the guilds and that kind of thing and through to a period where um, much of that knowledge started to be claimed by um, the elites um, and is increasingly put into print and there's various people's work I'm thinking um, that um, uh, Fisher's work, I think he's at Exeter, working on one of Jane Woodall's projects, but he certainly identified some of this about how knowledge work, works within agricultural, within the agricultural environment and the sort of, um, the sort of land grab, uh, to, excuse upon the land grab by the kind of elites um, to sort of harness and have that knowledge for themselves and put it into print and to own the knowledge, um, and to, you know, which has been something that would have felt would have been felt would have been residing with um, you know labourers and farmers before that. So there's a sort of general trend there, I think, that this might tap into. 
Um, the another point I wanted to make was that important, the importance of connections really between work and knowledge, specifically domestic work. Um, and I have been, you know, my own research quite interested, obviously, in what women's knowledge is and what women do in this period. But I am really inspired by Jane Whittle's recent interventions on the subject of domestic work and economic history. Um, and specifically where, um, where you get things excluded from calculations of GDP and that kind of thing. And the way, you know, for example, domestic work such as um, cooking and cleaning and caring for others is considered sort of non effectively non kind of productive. It doesn't, it doesn't relate to the larger economy. Whereas other male work that again might be to do with subsistence, really, so subsistence farming or the repair of buildings would not ever be just required, would never be described as just domestic work. It would be described as what it is, so agricultural work or building work. And so she's also unpicking some of some of the ways um, we still talk about work in the 21st century, what we count as work that is sort of part and parcel of the economy and what we don't add into those calculations. Um, and then and the way that that has been, that some of those mindsets about kind of, you know, 20th and 21st century economies has been sort of transferred onto the early modern and has obscured some of the um, dynamics of work basically um, in that period. And so, yeah, so I'm very interested in this connection between knowledge and work and, and, and some of, of what Whittle is talking about there. So another point is that the home, I guess, offered a space that prioritised understanding of materials and their properties, access um, to spe specialised equipment for transforming materials from one format to another. It was a space that emphasised experimentation and knowing through doing. So these are, this is what the home makes you do, okay, engage in experimentation of one form or another. And lastly, in our period, I guess the best known um, names of natural philosophy most often conducted their inquiries at home, but in doing so, um, they I would argue they merely conform to a much more general experience of using domestic space, developed understanding, ingenuity and expertise, whether that was considered to be useful knowledge or scholarly knowledge. Um, and yeah, I think that's where I leave it. And I can probably stop sharing my screen with you too. Thank you. Let's see. Thank you, Leonie. That was absolutely wonderful, and I think learned so much. And I think I think what's striking is just the contemporaryness of some of this. Whether it's Sarajevo, as we've often become sort of trope of lockdown, but also I think the discussions about gendered work more seriously at the end and the nature of work and how those discussions have come back into play. And I'm glad you made reference to Jane Whittle's work. I think she was absolutely wonderful as well. Um, I think I think there's probably a whole range of questions that could be asked, and we have a distinguished large audience here so i'm going to hand over to them we know a lot more about some of these things and we'll take some questions from the audience so any questions you have please do post in the question and answer box at the bottom of your screen and we'll try and we have, i shall put them to um leone first question slash comment comes in here from sarah pennell um i'm just mentioning about still rooms that are often separated out the nature of the fumes produced by the charcoal fueled stoves for the alembics or the ovens um, and she points to ham house a, as an example I was, that's just something i was sort of wondering about as well is just the geography and the spatialness of this within this sort of elite house 
is it that a lot of these experimental spaces were confined to the places that get demolished later? So we don't have those examples. Think of the Strokestown one is obviously remarkably unusual. I mean, points yes. to the archaeology of that house. But I'm thinking of breweries and all these other buildings that we can never find. And then it's left our archaeological yes. traces. And is, that the, <laughs> is it for the very far fire safety reasons and things that we don't have, that we don't have them? Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, that must be it. I mean, Sarah, you'd know more about these um, these things than I do. Um, and yeah, thanks for that. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, particularly the, um, the the type of um, heat source that they're using. And I have seen that it's, got, it's quite common in some larger house plans to um, back your brewery and your bakery so that you can share a kind of furnace and I'm not quite clear yet about whether the still house or still room is is ever is ever joined in like that but I suppose it's possible that would be the case um but yeah I, I think you're right it must be um as you say fumes potential for fire which would have been a very serious concern um breweries are similar like I have seen I know one 18th century lower gentry household in England quite well. And that's quite interesting because it has the main house, it has two tiny wings, and it has some low buildings that have, would have probably been kitchen, dairy, and possibly some wash spaces. And then at the end, there's right on the end is the brewery house with its kind of conical roof. And I don't know if that format is absolutely, you know, is, is absolutely typical, but it does seem to be very sensible from that point of view, putting um, the most... <laughs> And most kind of problematic bit as far away from the main house. Yeah, so I think I think I think that's probably those those reasons probably explain the scarcity of the kind of architectural evidence for this, um, because it is a room that seems to sort of just disappeared. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now the question here from Hilary Ray. Um, thank you so much for a fascinating talk. Were there any links between this work? And either scientific societies or with salons run by women where they could engage in mathematics or astronomy. I know this yeah, is so, one of your interests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks. Um, thanks, Hilary. Um, yeah, so I, I'm i using a lot of societies, um, various societies, Irish and English societies, um, records to try and uncover this sort of material. I mean, when I started, I wanted to do, I thought I could do it all with sort of household account books and things, but it's very difficult so I have made a lot of use of say the Dublin Society records and there are other ones besides but um but that's kind of that's that I mean that is where women you know when and the women the women examples I have and that's women writing into those societies it's not necessarily the societies were particularly welcoming of their contributions although actually several women were awarded prizes for the things that they sort of uncovered and reported to um the main case I would have there would be the Society for Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce in London. Um, so, so there's definitely a role there. And there, any transactions and, and evidence of letters in by kind of curious types is, is really, really interesting. And I have relied on that quite heavily. Um, but I haven't got I haven't got a sort of coterie example particularly. And I'd be obviously really interested in some of my earlier work probably did look to did look to sort of coteries of women and networks of people with antiquarian interests and so on a bit more but with this sort of more experiment or more um natural knowledge angle I haven't found that as much although I'm increasingly interested in the role of kind of almanacs and almanac culture which is again something I've not 
typically, you know, my background haven't looked at greatly, but there seems to be huge connections between people who are really, really interested in who read a lot of almanacs, might have some role in producing them, are also doing things like surveys of counties of Ireland and reporting back to societies, keeping weather diaries. Um, there's a source, there's definitely synergies there. So, um, so there's a lot of connection and I'm that's part of my project at the moment is to try and um, make sense of, of that. And again, very, very um, happy to take any comments from people who know better than me on that one. Excellent. Um, and then I'm just thinking of people like John Rutty and others and sort of autodidacts of that sort. Um, question here from Ros Paolo. Thank you again, she says, for a fascinating paper. We can agree on that. A question about locality. I was struck by the colour descriptions, script descriptions in the Barm account. It seems to me this might be similar to pre-taxonomic -tax botany, descriptions dependent on specific examples without a shared vocabulary. Obviously, it is a problem of subject observation here, but do you think there's a relationship between place and local knowledge and the ways in which it's difficult to translate tacit knowledge. Yes, that sounds like a good idea. Um, yeah, you're right, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that comment. Um, yeah, the specificity, the specificity of the language, also the repertoire that someone might have given on their region, location, role, etc., could be quite different, couldn't it? And I just that's why I like that example of letters because you do get a bit, you do get um, suddenly a sense through the language and um, descriptions, a sense of what Jane's world and her reference points and you know her kind of material literacy, what that contains and what it refers to. Um, and it could be that she used those descriptions to try and explain to him what she meant. Because um, she was explaining to her master, basically, maybe she, she'd been explaining to another servant, her language may have been different. It's, it's really hard to, to, um, to know that um, from, from his account. But yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point about place and specificity of local knowledge. And of course, probably more of, I would think that more work has been done around that in terms of things like traditional medicine, knowledge around that and kind of gendered component. Um, there's certainly interesting studies on her herbs, herbal medicines and um, who, who had the agency and the ability to help others with that kind of natural knowledge, which is quite localized because of the sorts of things that grow or the kinds of, the kind of climate you live in or what have you. So, um, and has a relationship with like print culture in the sense that other things that you know, you know, recipe books are also printed, but is something that is very rooted in domestic practice. So I think, yeah, I think that kind that, yeah, I think there are probably some synergies between medicinal knowledge and kind of botanical knowledge more generally. Oh, yes, I can see Sarah's comment there. Yes, I think the question there. So you some useful information for you there, I think. On thank you. Just um, I'm scribbling it down. <laughs> any any further questions? Please do post them in the Q and A tab, and I'll put them to you only here. Um, on the sort of these spaces and the sort of and the one of the things that struck me in the Rousham example is the gendered nature of that. It clearly, this man is not meant to be there. He's not meant to be doing these experiments. And is that 
is 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 this is this something you come across the sort of distrust of people experimenting rather than carrying doing their normal sort of production processes that somebody interfering experimenting causing sort of domestic upheaval is that is that an isolated example or is that something that this is, i mean these were the little glimpses i got when i was doing my first project really that i thought that made me so basically and Orma moaning about the stewing prunes and um mary evelyn talking about stilling and cells just just because they were key they were key kind of characters within my first kind of book project of PhD really you know um and and those little glimpses which were glimpses they wrote lots and lots and they didn't write a lot about that sort of thing they just came in at sort of funny moments and they struck me and that's what kind of created this line of inquiry um let me think I think there's loads of I think there's lots of stuff about I think one of the reasons why I found this very hard to research is because the um because there are ideas about what um what's kind of respectable and proper in relation to doing um proper um doing intellectual work or scientific work so what I find is so as I said I made I make use of letters into various societies okay so what you find is there's lots of letters in saying I did, made, did this experiment at home. It's often put in terms of experiment. They often sort of ape the kind of language of um, scholarly inquiry and try to demonstrate rigor. Having said that, most accounts and especially accounts by men try to remove domestic detail. So even though you know they had to be doing the thing at home and then you're thinking well, what exactly they're using to do this and what are the circumstances, have they got any help? But, you're, but, but it's sort of tactfully le left out of the account, I think because they think, I think because it seems like it would make, it would make their account seem less kind of proper perhaps. And then I found, I mean, I have an interest in what women are doing um, anyway, <laughs> but I found that some accounts by women were much more voluble on the question of exactly what the domestic environment was and how they used it and adapted it for these purposes. And I've written about that mainly in relation to rearing silkworms and then come you know kind of watching their behaviors and then commenting on their production of silk and so on um so so i so so i think i think was loads i i know loads of people doing all this stuff at home i see you get glimpses from account books recipe books and other kinds of domestic ephemera and architectural um evidence of what they had in their hands you know Sarah um, Pennell's work on this on the kitchen is obviously completely fundamental to this. You can see what they've um, what they can do and what they have um, in their environment, but then getting making the links between that and the um, the sort of specifically inquiring element rather than just producing things in a, in, in that way is difficult, and it is partly because the people who cl claim inquiry as part of what they're doing like to drop out of their narrative um boring kind of domesticity i suppose i suppose, i mean i'm inferring that but um so you have to look at a lot to to find the little glimpses and particulars of of domestic environment within within their accounts i'm not sure this is your question no absolutely um, another question here from clara halloran um, are there significant differences in the practices slash inquiries slash experiments be found in the smaller houses or the less well-off yeah so this is something that i kind of need to fill in the gaps a bit with so i have obviously you can like there's 
it's easier to find out about larger properties. They're more likely to leave inventories and that kind of thing. And I recognise that some of my sketching out of um, domestic space is a bit over-reliant sometimes on those. I have a really nice sample of much more modest um, household, um, but it's within a North American context. So it's quite interesting for a comparison, but obviously it's not a direct comparison. Um, but I do, I have drawn on, and, and some, there are some studies of individual villages and their houses, so going from kind of um, larger properties, like kind of landowning yeomanry and farmers through to sort of lower scale. So I do have some examples, but it, I have to be, it has to be said it's hard to absolutely generalise. And then some of the, some of my material does, does lean on um, larger households where of course there's a full spectrum of um, resources and apparatus and and that kind of thing um but I do what I have got and this is the jigsaw puzzle of this research it's been hard where you find a lot of it's hard to find the you can see this component parts and hard to find the, the the solid bit of evidence that links the two but I do have a, some really nice information from some a couple of apprentices writing to each other in Dublin in the mid 18th century and they and they're living in incredibly cramped and crowded um domestic space that they share with lots of other people now their their inquiry is somewhat different it's it's more it's focused on astronomy so it's a bit different they're looking out to the stars really and they whilst they need to do some kind of calculations on pen and paper it's more of a desk job than something more um something more material I suppose having said that it's really interesting to see for people who are pressed for time pressed for domestic space and yet are craning out of like garret windows to get the right view of a particular um thing that's happening in the sky that they've um read about and relaying this information back and forth and practicing um, their ability to do the sorts of calculations um, that can help them work all this stuff out is really, I think is telling. So whilst it's coming at this from a slightly different angle in terms of the practice of inquiry and subject of it, um, it does point out that where there is interest and even in quite compromised circumstances, um, people do find a way of um, satisfying that interest off if they, you know there's any possibility of it so I think that has made me more certain that I'm not overlaying too much an elite household um, kind of setup and you know what it allows you onto lower status households and people um, yeah and one of my silk one of my silkworm women who have you know huge amounts of quality material from was living above a post office in what seemed to be really quite confined domestic space um so people are managing uh, even in yeah much more modest accommodation excellent i love the fact you have a silk you have you have multiple silkworm women um, and, and this is i think this has been absolutely fascinating um some wonderful questions i think we, probably, we, should, we can probably leave it there and i just want to thank leone again for a really wonderful presentation i thank her so much for joining us um during the, um, the challenges of everything that everybody is undergoing and i know with childcare and everything else family circumstances multiple workloads i think it's great to be able to great to be able to have you here today hopefully we'll have you in dublin for a proper in-person seminar sometime in the future um, and we just want to, I just want to highlight as well, just in terms of our programme coming up for the next couple of weeks, um, 
Next week, we will move to something very different. Very different. We'll have Mr. Andrew Keefe from Harvard, who will be talking about empire, race, and criminal justice in early modern Ireland. We'll then move to late 18th century Dublin with Dr. Porrick Higgins um, from Mercer County College in New Jersey. will be talking to us about the Chimney Doctor at Channel Row, the Dublin House of Industry in the 1790s on the 27th of February. And then on the 1st of March, we have David Briscoe from Trinity talking to us about philanthropy um, in revolutionary France. So just to give you some sense of what's coming up on the whole programme available on the Long Room Hub website. So once again, thanks to Leone for a wonderful presentation. Thanks to all those who asked questions. Thanks to all of you who turned up. And we shall see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. The rise of feminism.